0: Here we go, and live on JFrog uh, YouTube. What's going on? Oh, po- 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 po. This doesn't work. Okay, give me one sec. Go live. Please grant necessary privilege for live streaming. Oh, I think YouTube changed something. Okay, I'm going to are live um, everywhere. And uh, hello and welcome to another episode of the DevOps Advocacy Podcast. Uh, my co-host is Kat Cosgrove, developer advocate at My name is Barok Sadogurski. I'm head of DevOps Advocacy in Jeffrog, And we have a very dear guest with us today, the one and only Jessica Dean. Hello. And you all know Jessica Dean because everybody knows Jessica Dean. So um, for the two people that don't know you, go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: My name is Jessica Dean, no relation to James Dean. So my last name is spelled with two E's. And I am a senior cloud advocate at Microsoft. Typically, I'm usually on stage. But right now I'm coming to you from the lovely home office with a whole bunch of Star Wars stuff in the background.
0: Well, we, we try to make as as close to the stage as possible. So this is our stage for 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 today. Uh, and like uh, yeah, and and uh, Jessica, you do a lot of uh, advocacy and and help people with uh, uh, implementing uh, DevOps practices on on Azure mainly. Does it. Is it pretty mainly much...
1: on Azure as the cloud? But I love yeah. working with doing DevOps. That's not necessarily maybe Microsoft centric. I will show on how you can accomplish the same series of tasks or functions and having a pipeline, whether it's using Azure DevOps, whether it's using Jenkins, whether it's merging the two together, something like Codefresh or CodeShip from CloudBees, uh, Travis CI. I think Baruch, you and I have done stuff with JFrog Artifactory X-Ray. You've done Travis CI. I've done Jenkins. Like I love bringing things together and finding what works best for the customer and the end user.
0: Yep. That's, that's the true advocate, right? The idea of, of developer, of DevOps developer advocacy is to do what's right for the customer, not necessarily promote your, your product or your tool. And I think you are, you are an example of how it truly should be done. And uh, what we usually see from you and hear from you, and I guess um, you did also the demo at uh, Microsoft Ignite, and it's, it's very, very technical, very, very tools-oriented. Here is how you get um, something done. Um, and today I actually wanted to talk about something else, and I don't think we heard this part of um, Jessica Dinh yet. It's more of thoughts about about DevOps, not as a set of tools to implement DevOps practices, but maybe about DevOps itself, as as a culture, as a methodology, as a, you know, as a movement. Uh, but we have uh, the luxury of just chatting about it. We have plenty of time. To hear everything you want to hear you want to talk about and uh, i'm personally very curious because we know each other for for some time now but i we never we never got into this discussion yet what do you think about devops i mean i think devops
1: is yeah that's the (laughs) um i mean i think devops is essential to fast product productivity high performance being able to streamline delivery, and most importantly, deliver value. Uh, I think it's very challenging to deliver something of value without having a standardized set of practices uh, and a methodology and a culture that your company or your team adopts. If everyone's kind of doing their own thing or going back 20 years ago, writing bash scripts and unattend files and shell scripts and setting cron jobs, that's not reliable. That's not delivering value. So I think once we really, as a not necessarily just a culture, but as a uh, engineering uh, proficiency started adopting DevOps itself, we really started streamlining what that definition of value is and being able to deliver faster and more reliably to customers
0: uh, definition that's that's interesting definition of value. Is um, is is a pretty pretty broad term, right? Because value can be defined in 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 many many different ways. What is the definition of value for for you? So for me,
1: the definition of value goes back to the definition of DevOps, and this is the definition that my team at Microsoft stands behind, that Microsoft itself stands behind, and has also been printed in a lot of non-Microsoft completely cloud agnostic uh, or company agnostic books was actually written by Donovan Brown, but it's DevOps is the union of people process and products to enable continuous delivery of value to our end users. So when we can make all of those things, number one, it starts with people, right? We have to have people on the same page. That's why we talk about this mindset and culture. And then we can fit in the products and everyone's products or tools or tool chains are gonna be different based on that value delivery. To me, something that's valuable is something that's gonna work, something that's solving the customer need. If you're pushing out all these changes and A, it's not what's actually solving what they're using or they're not using your new change or your new sprint, then you're just kind of throwing money in a direction that no one's even looking at. So it's really paying attention to the people that are involved, both your engineers and your customer base, and then delivering value. That's going to enable again, that continuous um, delivery and that continuous push for whatever your business is, right? You think of businesses, whether it's sales, online stores for Amazon or healthcare industry, they're going to have two different definitions of value as far as what they want to deliver from healthcare, they're gonna wanna make sure that all their systems, everything's online, everything's always stable, lives depend on that. For Amazon, it's a little bit more, they wanna make sure that they can deliver products and maybe still deliver medical things to customers, but they're also focused more on a sales first financial bottom line. Uh, So I think it kind of depends on, again, whatever focus your industry is, that definition of value, but being able to meet the customer expectations.
0: Okay. And you mentioned Bash scripts, like writing batch bunch of Bash scripts as, as, as maybe something that we used to do before and not necessarily should do now, but I'm wondering why you cannot build a proper DevOps methodology, culture, whatever you call it, with Bash scripts. In the end of the day, Bash scripts are the, the original infrastructure as code, if you wish, uh, this is how yep. we used to automate everything back in the day when we didn't have um, all kind of uh, fancy tools like Chef and Puppet and Salt and and obviously their Hashi Stack now. I mean, why why do we ever care about if it's Bash script or 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 not?
1: So I think it depends on how the script is written. Uh, back in the day when we used to write batch, bash, whatever kind of scripts we're running, and we have update this web server, extract this tar file or whatever it is, and we have things hard-coded. And then developer pushes something to our SCP server and adds a One at the end of the file extension. And now our bash or shell script can't go find that and can't build it and... Also, from a manual perspective, you're manually running that script, right, sh.run.sh or whatever it is, you're still re- leading that manual person and that manual interaction. I will say that m- some of my CI/CD pipelines do have bash, but I structure them to where they are as automatable and dynamic as possible. So use environment variables, set the environment variable per your environment or your pipeline settings. There's so many things you can do to make sure that they are, again, repeatable and reliable. But I think the traditional way we used to stand up infrastructure was running a bunch of things that were hard coded, that then when we're having to make updates or move from, I don't know, one version of Ubuntu to the next for whatever web server, one version of Apache to the next, we're having to go in and manually change all the places that version is used. And that's time consuming, that's not reliable. If we make a typo, now all of a sudden the bash script breaks and it errors out. So there's definitely things we can do in a pipeline that make sure that it's going to run the same way every single time.
0: That makes sense. That makes sense. So it's all about automation to minimize human intervention. Uh, because humans are not very good in uh, repetitive tasks. Uh, we want to that- make
1: sure that we, we automate everything we can, right? There's certain things that maybe shouldn't be automated, but everything that we can, we should find a way to automate it in the most reliable and dynamic way possible so it scales with us from an engineering perspective, whether that's you're an engineer on a team or you're the director of engineering, for an engineering company perspective, you want to make sure that it, that your pipeline is able to scale with you.
0: Here we go. I think you you kind of uh, uh, that's that's what I wanted to ask. You mentioned that we should automate everything that uh, that we can, but probably are there some things that shouldn't be automated? What do you think? What are they?
1: I think it, it again. It kind of depends on the engineering flow and the engineering. Um, industry, so to speak. I know certain people feel safe where they can automate using a series of different, what's called gates in Azure DevOps. So they can run queries, they can run functions, they have visual testing and they can check for certain things before it leaves QA and goes over into prod. I've seen other customers not want to automate the push from QA into prod and want to actually manually choose to approve that. Now that's still automated. You still have that, defined in your CICD pipeline saying, I want to push this into prod only if this approval has happened, but that approval step is still manually done. However, the second I click, yes, this is approved, that promotion into prod now happens in an automated, automated fashion. So it's somewhat automated, but still it's hinged on needing a manual task done. So I think it really, again, depends on the pipeline, depends on what you're pushing out, depends on how you have your uh, infrastructure structured.
0: Frankly, I, I mean, I, I understand why people would want those manual checks on, on the quality gates. I'm not sure it's, it's the right approach, especially not uh, looking going forward. Uh, because um, it it eventually slows down this flow of software. And um, as you know, liquid software, this is something that we are not feeling comfortable with. Um, Why do you think is that? Why do you think people still want to have this manual control over um, quality gates? And do you think it can be solved uh, through and, and how through technology or not?
1: I think it can one of the ways that I know a lot of customers will end up solving the use of quality gates is rather than pushing immediately to production and having it uh, live for every customer is they'll push it and hide it hide new features that were released in sprints behind feature flags and so they can utilize feature flags for certain for a, a set of almost like quality assurance testers So they can sit here and try out this new feature, make sure that everything works, get the feedback from that, and then go ahead and remove that feature flag and make it live for everyone else. So I know that some people are able to, or some customers are able to go that route. I think the biggest reason you asked is uh, your question was why do people still need to hold on to that is historically, we liked control, right? We liked being able to go and build this system and build this virtual machine and write this bash script and say, I'm going to run it now. And then that way, I'm sitting there watching it. When it fails, I can fall back and fix it. Only you shouldn't be testing your failure in production. That should have already happened well before that. So I think a lot of it is also getting comfortable with having less control. Uh, I did a webinar a few weeks back with, Angie Jones from Apply Tools, and we were talking about visual testing and how you can add visual testing in is another layer of again confidence in your CI C D pipelines. So rather than just saying, for example, and this has happened in, in production before, somebody pushes a change and they they move the the pay now button on whatever their shopping cart is. Only wherever they move it, it also moves to a different div, and now that pay now button is white and the background is white. And the text is white. So now no one can find the button itself. Now mm-hmm. from, you, from, from normal testing, you might run everything and Selenium and everything says that button works, that button exists, everything is good. And so that flows through into production. Only when you add visual testing in and you get a visual snapshot, you can visually see there was actually a discrepancy and something has changed. Now, the reason how come I bring that up in that webinar up is Angie said that when she first started writing all these tests... She would try to have 12 tests that would check for all these different things that could be written in one test. And so she realized the value of writing less. I think for us, from a DevOps engineering perspective, we need to realize the value of controlling less. Once I have tools and products in place that can have these quality assurance check gates, now I have additional confidence to where I don't need to be the bottleneck.
0: So... This I think that's a good sense. way to put it that yeah 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 and it actually you know what it reminds me it reminds me the basic principles of encapsulation in any programming language it is about knowing less uh, yeah. to, to, to achieve more yep so this is I so don't
1: want to have to write five hundred lines of a pipeline when I can really do it in 100, right? I mean, if I can do things in less, if I can put the same gates in, if I can put the same quality in, uh, and there's a variety of different products and tools you can do to add additional quality. In fact, uh, we, we demoed this off. This was, I thought, super cool from a confidence perspective. We demoed this at, I think, Microsoft Ignite last year, but it's a GitHub action, which, I mean, you can use with any cloud, really. This is a GitHub action with Azure Dev Spaces, so that part is specific to Azure, but what it does is the second you make a change to the PR branch, if you're using something like Kubernetes, it'll actually take your entire deployment, your Helm charts, everything, it will deploy it over to a specific PR namespace within your Kubernetes cluster, it'll create a sandbox URL for whatever your DNS name is, and it'll comment it on the PR itself that you've just opened. So now everyone on your team, including people that could previously never be part of a review process, now can see how this functions, how this PR functions, how your changes are. And they can see, yes, this fix looks good or this change looks good, immediately say approve, and now the pipeline goes through, which, yes, is still a little bit of manual labor. However, there's confidence that's being added into that that we never previously had before.
2: I like that. I'm, I'm really lazy, um, but I'm also really like nosy about what's going on with uh, stuff I'm working on or I'm building. Like I got to know everything, even if it seems mundane and my laziness manifests in a way where I'll spend like an outrageous amount of time at the very beginning setting up automation like that to make sure that I don't, first of all, I don't ever have to touch it again, but that I know everything, even if it seems irrelevant. So that's, that's really cool. I love
1: that well and and what I like about that is it's not like a normal dev test Q a canary workflow, right That's I'm making a PR. it goes off and does it in its own space, and now I can go back and check and realize, okay, before I ever push it through my pipeline, I've already vetted this. I have confidence, my team has confidence, my pm who doesn't even know what a PR stands for has confidence, <laughs> like everyone's on the same page.
0: yep. This is, this is the way to, to build this conference. And obviously our goal is to make sure that we, after, after a while of doing this manual step of verifying that everything is okay, we will get to a stage when we have so much confidence, confidence in the pipeline that we can get rid of this manual approval step.
1: Yes. And I think it's, again, making sure that that's where that we go back to the definition of DevOps. If it's the union of people, process and products, we add enough products and tools and we have a tool chain into our process to where the people, which is I always say like that's the priority. That's the main part that we're considering, whether it's our engineers or our customers, then our people now have confidence in our delivery.
2: I think there yeah. are still steps to be made on people letting go of uh some control though. Because we are like we're holding on to control to our own detriment in uh some yes. situations, I think.
1: Well, and we're we're human, right? So like number yeah. one, we're we're prone to where we can fail, right? I mean, I we've all been on stage before. We're all trying to do live coding and we fat finger something. We have to go back and fix it. Uh, And so even from that perspective, that's why we want to have a pipeline that we haven't fat figured anything. Everything works, but I have talked to so many people that even do what we do from an advocate perspective and they're scared to let go of that manual typing. I have got, I'm such a, automation obsessing now where I will click one letter and it will finish typing the rest of my line for me. And I have to pre-program all of my live coding, which that's my spoiler alert and my secret. But I do that because (laughs) I want to make sure that people can follow along and I'm not backspacing and clearing and doing all that. Like I want to automate everything I can to where the viewer or the customer or whoever gets the best experience and can learn or again, consume whatever website I built shop medical supplies, whatever it is. I, I keep mentioning medical because my prior to joining Microsoft, I actually worked for a med device company and we specialized in automation and engineering for hospitals all over the world.
2: Oh, that's cool. That
1: that's was cool. cool. That was also very yeah. stressful because you oh, want to I'm talk sure. about checks and balances. That's oh, not yeah. just like making sure it goes through a pipeline. That's making sure it meets certain regulations in multiple countries, multiple governments, military. I mean, it was... That was probably the most specific I've ever seen things get.
2: That sounds uh, also like deeply stressful when you're dealing with something our... that keeps somebody alive. Like,
0: <laughs> yeah, but the, on the, the quality other side, assurance this that is, this is also yeah. where our our updating our software becomes critical, right? Because if you remember what happened with uh, the the British. Health system when they got this ransomware a couple of years ago, uh, and it took out like all the equipment, including like X-rays and 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 you know life supplying machines. That's, that's what happens when you neglect software in the, in the medical in, uh, industry. So it definitely raises the bar of um, of your you know how how responsible you should be. But responsible is not necessarily slowing things down. No,
2: the automation Absolutely. is more trustworthy there's... than a person.
1: Yeah. Well, I think you, you said that correctly. Like responsibility doesn't slow things down. I've talked to customers before where I, I walk them through the steps that they need to take to streamline and add automation and add confidence into their pipeline. And more than, on more than one occasion, I will get a response of, but that takes so much time. What's the alternative? You're going to take more time when something fails or you get sued because something critical failed. Like the investment now will pay off in dividends later on.
0: And here's my next question, which is regarding all this. So you mentioned um, it is is a very regulated industry and probably not only from your perspective, from your 1st like, firsthand experience in the medical industry, but now as Microsoft uh, developer advocating, probably a uh, cloud advocate, you probably contact a lot of those who work in those kinds of industries. Uh, all those regulations that require stuff which looks on a surface uh, a complete contradiction of DevOps principles, like separation of concerns. Whoever writes the code shouldn't deploy the code. Or um, uh, quality gates, you should have reviews on every step. All those are intended to favor control over speed. And I wonder how you see uh, DevOps can overcome those seemingly contradictory requirements.
1: I think, again, it's going to depend on the industry because in certain things like healthcare from a medical perspective, I don't, Doing things like quality gates and having policies applied to your pipeline that, again, somebody who checks in the code can't be the one to approve it and push it out, I think all of those are still within DevOps practices and DevOps standards. In certain cases, it doesn't make sense to override that because somebody, if you remove that policy, you find a way to still have confidence, there's still that 001 percent margin of error. And in certain cases, that's still too expensive to be able to sit there and say, I'm going to go ahead and remove that. Now, in other cases, it's not too expensive. Uh, There's even from not only a DevOps perspective, but an SRE perspective, there's a a very widely accepted. And I agree with it belief that you're never going to get to 100% confidence, 100% perfection. There's always going to be a small margin of error. And the reality is, is that most companies, even if it's offline for a small fraction of time, which sucks, obviously Mm -hmm. that, that, financially has implications, it's still not, it's not life-threatening, it's not, the world's not going to blow up, things aren't going to come to an end, and so you can automate enough to where you're going to have that reliability, if it's offline for an hour, okay, we're going to, we're going to take what happened, and we're going to have a postmortem. we're going to learn from that, and we're going to be proactive moving forward, so that doesn't happen, so you can take any potential failure that you're learning throughout your process, and figure out how you can Prevent that in the future. And you can keep doing that with each sprint and with each removal of um, control, but there's certain industries where you can't take that risk at all. I'm not, and by the way, I'm not saying that everyone wants failure and failure's Okay, but in a way I am saying like failure is a part of how we learn. Like things fail, fail fast, let me recover, let me get back up. And then let's have a blame list. That's another key thing that I do think is important in DevOps. We don't go and blame whatever failed. We understand why and then we put checks and confidence and quality checks in to make sure that that can't happen again.
0: And, and, and those checks are not let's stop everything and take a look at it next time. Instead, we try to automate as much as possible in those checks as well.
1: Exactly, yeah. and you have to realize like everything's fluid, right? Everything's going to change. We're going to some of our dependencies, our packages, or things that our pipelines depend on might have a an, a breaking change in the pipeline, and we need to figure out okay, how can we check for that even moving forward? I, I know even from an Azure perspective, when I'm deploying out infrastructure, there are certain packages for deploying out key pieces of infrastructure that will get updated and they're not idempotent. So I actually have to write statements to make sure, okay, if this happens, then do this. And you kind of, you you continuously add to your pipeline to check and validate, and again, add just more confidence to where that is reliable, and you automate as much, again, automate as much as you can. And as you can at the time with the information you have. No, none of us are fortune tellers.
0: Of course. And uh, um, in the all those practices in your experience, are they enough for, for the regulators or do you see any changes that because all uh, regulators are obviously very conservative. Their job is kind of, you know, prevent the crazy stuff. They don't trust the IT. They don't trust the developers. They're like, Whoa, whoa, whoa. take it easy. All you want to do is do crazy stuff. We cannot allow that. And um, so, uh, DevOps has been with us for, for 10 years and uh, that's kind of uh, should be enough even for the most conservative regulators to kind of come on board and realize that it's, it's not realistic in 2020 to actually demand uh, from organizations not uh, do this separation between people who write code and people who, um, people who uh, deploy code So do you see any change in that or are there any tricks that we can kind of trick the regulators into fulfilling their requirements but still doing DevOps?
1: I think the best thing is is when you're sitting down and you're figuring out your delivery pipeline, the first part is, is to have everyone that's involved in that in the room. That's people like you have the regulators in the room, you have IT in the room, you have your developers in the room. Everyone becomes now the shared DevOps not a DevOps team, but this shared group of people that has adopted DevOps culture. And when you start figuring out what your pipeline is going to be, you want insights from the SREs, from the regulators, from the developers, and from the IT, from everyone involved in the process, because people like regulators might have a valid point as to why you can't automate something that the developers think you can, and vice versa. And especially when you think of, just taking dev and ops, and you have developers and operations, or anyone who feels comfortable saying, I'm IT or I'm developer, both teams historically were always incentivized to work against each other because, like regulators, IT wanted as little change as possible. We wanted the lights to stay on. And my background was I was a systems admin for 10 years, more than half my career. And my job was to have as little change as possible. So for all the developers, I'm like, that's great, you sent me a package? No. <laughs> I will get to it in two weeks, I will stand everything up, we will test everything, then we will push it. But that's not realistic now in in 2020. So there's insights that I can bring to the table from my background and then I can listen to developers. And I've also flipped over on the dev side so I can also kind of understand that. But then from a regulator perspective or SRE perspective, that's why it's important to have everyone in the room and kind of figure out what are we missing? what are our, what are our holes? What, what can we fill and how can we add additional confidence for everyone in the room and not just the developer centric pipeline or the IT pro centric pipeline or the regulator pipeline, which is pretty much never pushed to production. <laughs> so,
2: yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you, uh, you said it's 2020 and we can't be doing that anymore. Uh, I saw a comment from somebody whose name I fortunately don't remember somewhere on the internet and, um, He was arguing that DevOps is a fad and that it's not something that a company should be wasting money on. Uh, What would you say about people who are still living in 2010 or I guess 2005 or whatever and still and think that DevOps is a fad and it's not something we need to spend money on?
1: I would say give me a call when your shit breaks (laughs) and you need help fixing it quickly. Uh, I mean, that's, that's really, I, I've, I've had conversations with that before where people tell me it's a fad, it's going to fail. Or my favorite is actually when customers come to me and they want to apply DevOps, but their leadership, their SLT doesn't believe in it or thinks that it's crazy or it's not a worthwhile investment. What I usually say is, okay, it, so long as it doesn't violate any company policy or any regulation, again, coming from the medical industry, there's certain things you're not allowed to do. But so long as you work in an industry where you're allowed to do this, Even if you have an on-prem repo uh, or, I don't know, GitLab or local Git or whatever you have with your company's absolutely essential infrastructure code deployment software, set up a pipeline. Go ahead and and set everything up and be able to to recover in the event of, again, a catastrophic failure. And then a catastrophic failure happens and all your coworkers are freaking out like, well, crap, I can't do my job. I can't do this. I can't do that. And you're over there on your merry computer, typing away, still being able to work because you have a pipeline, because you have confidence in what you set up. That'll be the fastest way to get the naysayers' attention and realizing, oh, should probably shut my trap because I was wrong. (laughs) But the best way, I mean, the only way you're going to prove to people that it works is showing them it works. And a lot of times people are not believers until they actually see it. And the only time they're going to see the value of it is when it directly
0: impacts them. This yeah. is this is so true. They said there is this Russian proverb that um, uh, smart, that dumb people uh, learn from others, uh, from their mistakes, and smart people learn from others' people's mistakes. I don't believe in that, I, uh, at least my experience teaches me not to believe in that. I think most of the people still learn from only their mistakes, even the smartest ones, and kind of preaching to them, well, you should do that because if something happens that will help you, usually doesn't work because people will see you as, uh, you know, just fear and uh, someone who tried to sell them uh, something and because they they never... So it happening, they don't believe that they will be actually affected. And unfortunately, uh, the, the only way to for people to actually understand the importance of something like that is to actually have them experience how it is without it and then realize it, what needs to be done. And I think our job as uh developer relations here is to make sure they know the alternative exists and what is it And can apply it once they themselves came to the conclusion that they need it, but not before.
1: Yeah, and I think that's the thing is they themselves need to come to the conclusion that it's needed. And that's the nail on the head right there. Because they won't see that they need it until they have to need it. Like it's, so I don't know why I thought of this, but I I had a friend that said that every house should have a fire extinguisher. And you have certain people that are like, well, that's never going to happen. My house is never going to burn down. And then the only way they're going to realize you really need a fire extinguisher is when something does light on fire. And if you had a fire extinguisher, you could put it out. Otherwise, now you're calling the fire department. You're having to react. You can't be proactive or fail fast in that situation. And I think that's the same thing. The DevOps pipeline or having something that you can confidently fall back on, that's your fire extinguisher. And that's going to save you a lot quicker than if you have to call and figure out all these manual things you previously relied on and now they're not available or your team is taxed or whatever happened. I
0: think think that's a a great analogy.
2: Yeah, Yeah, it's consistent across, like, uh, anything that requires you to expend or, well, requires a company at least to expend effort to prevent a maybe disaster later on. I I came to uh, the DevOps business from um, the data backup industry and consistently, like, people didn't care about backing up their company's data until they got hit with a crypto locker virus and lost everything. And they would start calling data backup companies and being like, oh, can you save me? No, dude, you didn't have a backup. You've got to pay the ransom, fam. And maybe, yep. you know, back stuff up next time.
1: When you when you just said data backup, and my first thought was ransomware because yep. we we had the... We well at least at my previous company, um, we had several engineers that were victims of that. Now all of yep. our key infrastructure backed up and actually send the hard drives away and all of that stuff. But yeah. anyone else's stuff, sorry,
2: gone. Like a for the failure. Solution to a ransomware is to have a, an offsite backup. That's it. Yep. Yep. But people still don't want to do it.
0: Yeah. No, there are two kinds. Well, and it's one of those... people. People who do backups and people who will, uh, and and they will when when they actually suffer that loss and realize that they actually. Yep. Need it. So that's that's exactly the same thing, right? You you not not before. Especially for complicated concepts, for for easy concepts like fire and fire extinguishing. Yeah, people learn from other people's mistake. Even if you didn't have fire, you realize why fire extinguishing is needed. For more complicated stuff, like what we are dealing with, tools for for DevOps and for pipelines, it's like, no, I don't need it. I can take and build uh, everything from the source every time I need it. I don't actually need like um, artifact management solution. We get that a lot. And the, the only thing for us is to explain what are the benefits and say, you know what, that's fine. When you hit the problem and you discover that you cannot rebuild and you wish to have those artifacts, at least for next time, you will be ready because now you need what to do.
1: Yeah, I mean I even from the artifact solution, binary solution, I've anytime I show like a large pipeline and I have things like artifactory and x-ray and I show the, the value of security scanning, there's usually always one person saying, Okay, but how common is it that stuff gets hacked? I'm like go find the article about the NPM package that was fake and overrode the entire, co- I can't remember what company it was, but company's website with a uh, bit mining software. And that happens all the time or any, it happens a lot. Right. And then it- or the time that I think targets credit card database was hacked because somebody had a dependency, same thing with Home Depot. Like if you really want your company to get famous because it's in the new- news for negative publicity, then fine. But otherwise you can, you can tie all these, you can do things that again, goes back to, I think the universal theme here, which is have confidence in what you're using. And some people will either see the value for it now, or they'll see the value for it when they're up against the wall. But either way, they'll see a value for it at some point.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I wish people would listen to us, but yeah, I don't, I guess that's you can true. bring
1: a horse to water but you can't make him drink
0: exactly true. yeah that's that's very true i think that's kind of that nails it um switching gears to to talk about technology a little bit so i think last time i, I mean uh, me personally uh, hang out with jessica a lot of conferences and see her talks and and um, we did some fun stuff together webinars and, and joint talks, but it's been, it's been a while. It's been I think like half, half a year since we last time hacked on something together. I wanted to hear what's new, um, what, what, is, what is coming up, what are the technologies we should pay attention, considering that we are the horses that are re- ready to, to, to drink, take us, take us to the river. What's, what's new and what's exciting? What are you looking at now? What's, uh, what's the next big thing if you wish?
1: Uh, I like that transition, by the way. I just talk about going to a river for, for water and you're like, all right. And then I'm looking at the speakeasy bottles behind us and I'm like, hmm. Yeah, uh,
0: so, I, think, I hope so.
1: Yeah, as far as what's new, I've kind of been finally hitting a lot of my backlog. I actually did, I already traveled, I think 50,000 miles this year before everything happened. Whoa. So now that, now, yeah, uh, I'm already, I already have, status in certain situations, which is not a good problem to have. Uh, But at least now I'm home. So as a result, I finally get to do things that are on my backlog and and catch up on things. Uh, I've actually been looking at, surprisingly enough, since my background is a lot of Linux and open source and Kubernetes things, last week I spent time on running 64-bit software in a windows app service and azure so i have some documentation and blog posts coming out about that that's surprisingly enough apparently relatively new because it wasn't documented anywhere and me coming from the linux era was very confused as to why 64-bit software running would be challenging so that was one thing that was in my backlog Uh, terraform i know is up and coming so having Uh, I guess anybody who's looking for things to kind of invest their time in checking out Terraform right now, checking out other open source projects like kind Uh, Kubernetes is still, I think the hot topic that everyone wants to know. Uh, But I don't have too many new things that's up and coming other than some of the stuff I've already talked about that we've, at least we from a Microsoft perspective have already publicly announced the, the dev spaces with the PR preview. That's pretty cool. Um, and then as far as, like I said, I'm trying to think of anything else being put on the spot. The the most recent thing that's fresh in my brain is 64-bit app service in uh, Windows
0: app service on Azure. I, I have a question for you. So, um, and that's kind of um, just, you know, a fair disclaimer. Uh, we had uh, Sasha Rosenbaum on our show, uh, I think like a week ago or something. And she's uh, she used to be the Product manager for Azure, and now she works with with GitHub on on their um, their stack. And she mentioned a couple of things that uh, were very interesting from GitHub perspective. And I wanted to hear the perspective of uh, Azure Cloud Advocate. Uh, it looks like there are some uh, even competitive services now between uh, Azure DevOps and GitHub. Um, namely the the artifacts and uh, also also actions. Uh, You have uh, CI capabilities in uh, Azure DevOps as well. How do you see this internal duplication of services?
1: So GitHub Actions underneath is actually its shared code base with Azure Pipelines. That's the magic of how GitHub Actions works. Um, Mm -hmm. Nat Friedman has been public in talking about that on Twitter. So that's part of the reason we're able to do our magic there. There are some differences. Uh, When you set up, let's say that you set up your own private build server, build agent within Azure DevOps, you run a tool based on whatever your OS is, Windows, Mac, Linux, and it will set up that build agent for any project that you want to run. GitHub Actions works a little bit differently because of GitHub Actions uh, security, and you're usually running a pipeline per repo, So you actually have to set up a build agent per project. So there are some like key differences there, which for certain companies might be annoying for lack of a better word. You're having to set up your own build server for every single repo you have. That's not exactly ideal, Um, but you can have automation to do that for you. I've actually written a blog post about how to handle that. As far as how I see the internal shift going, Azure DevOps isn't going away, GitHub Actions is just now another way to do it that's also not specifically centered on Azure and Microsoft, right? I can do, in fact, GitHub Actions is probably one of my favorite things to get started with and show for a demo because all actions are very easily written in either TypeScript or JavaScript, which is similar to how Azure Pipelines tasks are but the convention is how, of how you call those actions are very native. They're very intuitive and it's easy to read. So it's easy to help get somebody new into DevOps. The other key thing I like, and this goes back into something we talked about in the beginning, is you can actually run batch or bash commands natively in your pipeline. So if you have tool sets or a tool chain that you're already using, for example, JFrog CLI or Azure CLI, I can add those commands right into my pipeline. So I've done that before with even one of my demos that I've done at SwampUp, where I took, I think last year, I had this crazy pipeline with Artifactory X-Ray. It had Slack notifications. We were able to approve it or actually it would automatically fail if it had security high security errors. And I that could was, very easily... By the
0: way, very cool. If you didn't see uh, this talk, you should go and see it. Obviously, all the show notes, all the links are in the show notes, both on Podbean and on YouTube. Sorry for interrupting. I had to encourage people to go and see your talk. It was amazing.
1: Well, thank you very much. But the cool thing about that is is I wanted to see how hard it would be to recreate that in in actions because at SwampUp, especially at JFrog SwampUp last year, I used Azure Pipelines. And in GitHub Actions, it was actually, I felt even easier because all I had to do was make sure my build agent had JFrog CLI and I, again, wrote it in a way that was dynamic, I don't hard code anything, I have environment variables that my pipeline consumes, and then I can run it per environment, whether it's dev or production, and it's just using the normal commands I was already used to using in either Azure DevOps or Codefresh or Jenkins, I can sit there and just piece that into actions which I felt was a lot easier. So. GitHub Actions is just another way. It's another option that people can use. But it, Azure DevOps isn't going away just because Actions is here. That's probably one of the most common questions I get asked.
0: The other thing that yeah, people don't that, realize is that, that underneath. Exactly the that's the question that we asked, Sasha. And I'm glad that you both answered pretty much the same. So this is good. Now we have confidence from both from both sources, if you wish. <laughs> yeah. Confirmed by... See, two... confidence.
1: This is the theme. This okay. is like the confidence podcast.
0: It is. It is. Confirmed by two independent sources. This is how they call it. Uh, cool. Um, all right. Uh, what else we uh, we didn't speak about? Um, yeah, so um, I know. Um, helm 3 and draft. That's another topic that uh, we all... we. I think on this podcast, at least, are passionate about and and I think one of the one of those tiny things that make um, developers, especially in cloud native, uh, much more productive. Um, what do, what, so first of all, what's how Draft is doing? Um, you were the one who introduced me to Draft, and I think that's that's great, and I'm I'm really excited about this tiny tool. Uh, I wanted to check in on Draft and see how um how it is it's still developed active going forward
1: i'm going to check right now so i get an official answer here uh i it's hard sometimes to always get the official answer when you're out on the road uh, let me and i while i have been home now it's still only been about three weeks i think and so that backlog but let me do Okay, so it is still active. It was last touched about a month ago, actually just a little over a month ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, Prior to that, I know they were looking for members of the community to help contribute, but I've still been using draft for, I mean, gosh, all of last year, which Helm 3 was announced in May in Barcelona, Uh, I think I did several Helm 3 workshops while still talking about Draft. There's still both tools that I do recommend using and getting started with. For those who are new that don't know what Draft is, Draft is a development tool that will help streamline your creation of Helm charts. And Helm is what is now, I think, pretty de facto, the package manager for Kubernetes. And Helm 3 in particular I think was the first tool that I can think of where we removed a feature and a room full of 5,000 people cheered because we removed something. (laughs) Uh, That was when we removed Tiller. (laughs) That was pretty funny. Um, Gabe Monroy on stage was saying we removed Tiller and everyone goes up and up and screams and cheers. Uh, We removed Tiller. Tiller used to be kind of a mediator. It sat inside your Kubernetes cluster. And so when you would, Push your Helm chart, which is a—it's powered by Template Engine. So you have a—going back, we have—you have a Kubernetes YAML file, whether it's a deployment YAML or a service YAML or config map or whatever your your object or your resource is. Previously, you would have a lot of things that would be repeated, that would be hard coded, and so Helm was designed to essentially templatize that and parameterize that. So now you have one file—it's your values file—that you would define everything, and then your templates reference that values file. So now you can control even the largest deployments with just one file. The only problem is, is once you would push that or or Helm update or Helm install, which would be the command to deploy that, previously on Helm 2, that would get handed off to Tiller. Tiller then would talk to your Kubernetes API and then would go off and deploy that. So Helm predated original Kubernetes, which meant it predated things like RBAC and security. And there were, I mean, I think, Helm came out when Kubernetes was still like 1.6. It was very old. So as a result, we actually had to refactor all of that in Helm 3. And so now by removing Tiller, now any of your security or RBAC comes native from whatever your build server client system has access to, to Kubernetes specifically. And Draft really is only helping you make the Helm charts. And Helm 3 supports both backdated Helm charts, API version 1 and API version 2 for Helm 3. So these are still very useful tools that I would highly recommend using if you're doing anything remotely with Kubernetes.
0: Yeah, and the reason the reason we had tiller in Helm in the first place is because, as you mentioned, uh, Helm was is, is is so old that it actually worked with Kubernetes before Kubernetes had uh, role-based authentication. Controls. Uh, and uh, yeah. It, yeah, and, and Tinder was the, the, the way of uh, somehow managing the production access and make sure that developers can still do stuff without giving them the super admin role of Kubernetes, of, of uh, kube control, which was the only, the, the only role back then.
1: Yeah, but the problem with that is, is so now like you would install Tiller into whichever namespace with the ch- with whatever permissions you create, it was called a, well still is called a cluster role binding access control. So you role bind Tiller to whatever access level it has and install it in the namespace that whomever has access to. The problem is, is now though you're managing however X many number of different uh, security policies or role bindings or whatever, rather than just using native, again, whatever is built into the Kubernetes API. So it's a lot more streamlined to be able to have just one thing you manage from a security perspective than trying to manage all these other variables. And I think that goes back to also another way of getting confidence. You can get confidence with, again, less is more. The less you have to manage, the less you're trying to control, the easier it is.
0: Yeah. I guess I just want, I wanted to defend Tiller a little bit because it was um, – uh, um, it was a target of a lot of hatred and well, it existed for a reason. It, we obviously don't did, need it now. It, don't need it now. And there was ways to actually work without Tiller, even Helm 2. So it went away uh, timely, but it was there for a, for a very good reason. So, yeah. <laughs>
1: yep. And we also, I mean, we changed actually a lot of things around security in Helm 3. Cause one of the other big things was even the release history because the release history used to be stored in config maps, but now they're stored as secrets. And so I could link a secret storage over, whether that's Google or Azure or Amazon, and now I can actually more safely uh, encrypt any of my Helm releases, especially if that has other sensitive data, like connection strings or passwords, though really any of that should be going through either managed identities or key vaults or different things. But we really tried to focus on a security perspective when it came to Helm 3.
0: I just thought about a topic that we can actually argue about. Want to do that? Oh, Let's gosh. Fight. Let's fight. Um, the OCI format for storing Helm packages. Uh. What do you think about it? Before we actually start fighting, maybe there is no, no nothing to fight about.
2: I just got I out of a t- three-hour t- t- meeting with those dudes, and I uh, I want them to continue to like me, so I'm going to...
1: Uh, I, I don't agree. have I don't have an opinion one way or another um, i I'm the person that likes to sit back and kind of i don't know watch it burn for a little bit and see what happens. <laughs> um, i Before I make a decision on that, I think I'm definitely one of those people that I'm like I have to see the pros and cons, and I don't think I have enough in my data set to take a fighting stance
0: got it. All right, so no fight, so I will just run a little bit for a while.
1: I want There's to see in... you and Cat fight though. I mean, this it seems like Cat definitely has a big, big opinion.
0: I think uh, we have the same opinion, she's just not allowed to express it as Uh behavior. yeah, that's accurate. That's accurate.
2: <laughs> I just that uh, I I need them to to continue to want to talk to me. <laughs> Cuz so, we're, we're we are working on uh we are working on something together,
0: so yeah, yeah, no, but I think I, I understand wh- why, why they want to do it, uh, just because it simplifies things a lot in terms of infrastructure. Everybody now have uh, a Docker registry, uh, which basically means OCI registry, and that means that, boom, you, you can store your Helm charts without having any additional infrastructure. But I think that's not good enough of a reason. Uh, because you know what, everybody had a Maven repository before they had a, a Docker registry. So why wouldn't we package now Docker images as Maven artifacts just because it's easier? That's, uh, that's not a good enough of a um, of a reason. And from technical I think perspective, that I know their yeah. their
1: stance is standardization, and I do understand the value in standardizing things, but I think I, again I. I really want to see where the trade-off and the value is. And I, I think they're very much looking from like a future perspective on where things can go, especially from from a Helm 3's perspective. We also changed the way that our charts are handled because we wanted to move to something that was more ACI compliant. And I understand the direction as to why that's kind of heading there. I'm just waiting to see... I'm waiting to either watch if stuff grow or burn. I don't know.
0: Yeah, no, I, I I frankly think think that the container images are a pretty unique thing in terms of, you know, that they, they they are mm-hmm. invented to serve a certain technology. Pretty niche. I mean, it's super super popular and and wide, but it's just this one thing. Those layers of read only. Um, file system layers—they make sense in containers. They don't make sense in pretty much nothing else. And just taking the Helm charts, which is just a bunch of configuration files, and pretend they are a good use case for layered file system for containers. For me, it's just an abuse uh, for for the sake of saying well you don't need another another registry and that's not a good reason
1: i think for me i really want to see again maybe that goes back to another earlier conversation we had as far as sometimes you need to the person that needs to see the why you need to have it firsthand and i think i need to see what problems it solves firsthand uh and like i said that i just i haven't seen that yet so i i don't want to take a stance one way or another until i've yeah, actively no, trying fine. to make I things understand. break and watch what problem it solves.
0: I understand that none of you can actually, you know, fight me because Microsoft and OCI uh, community, that's fine. I will, I'm, I'm fine with ranting about stuff and uh, uh, myself. One you of know. the people
2: uh, leading the um, current like OCI weekly dev meetings is uh, actually a, a PM at Microsoft too. So... <laughs>
0: Uh, yeah, no, I think Microsoft has a has a pretty strong control over over Helm. Um, yeah. I'm not saying it is a bad thing. Obviously, Microsoft by now has an amazing record of uh, driving uh, great open source projects forward. So don't get me wrong. I don't think there is anything wrong with Microsoft. Uh, no, there's, forward, Helm.
2: There's a ton of great people on that team that aren't from Microsoft too, um, like uh, Vincent Batts from Red Hat. Is uh, It's got significant control over the new distribution spec for OCI. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, I
1: know from a Microsoft perspective is I think, I mean, I don't want to quote this as an official answer, but I know that Microsoft, if you look at their behavior over the past, uh, I don't know, at least six years is we're really trying to meet people where they are. And so if this is where the direction of people are going, then we want to make sure that we, or I would think we want to make sure that we support it. That doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to say this is the only way to do it, but here's option A, here's also option B, here's also option C. Like, I mean, you can support, you can store Helm charts right now in even Azure Container Registry. the difference is going to be with an OCI spec and how we're going to approach it from that angle. But again, I think from Microsoft's perspective, they're trying to do right by the community and say, if this is a community need, if this is a community demand, we want to be involved and see how we can help. And that's what I, at least I've noticed from a ton of, projects we that started when we got involved in kubernetes when we got involved in helm uh, even when we created virtual kubelet and then we donated that to the cncf like i really like the perspective of a lot of people at microsoft just wanting to listen to the community and i think that's really what we're doing with oci whether or not certain people agree with it i don't think is relevant because if this is what people are asking for then it's one of those things of personal opinions are outside of that
2: Yeah. It's, it's totally not relevant whether like Baruch and I think that they're making the best decision from a technical perspective. What, what matters is that Microsoft has gone from like IRL evil corp. When I was a kid, like you, you hated two companies in tech, you hated Microsoft and you hated Intel and they just, they, they were evil. They were anti-consumer and nobody liked them. And I think Microsoft has done like a commendable job of uh doing an about face and actually caring about the community instead of being evil corp for sure
1: yeah i mean it it surprised me even when i was hired i was hired because i just got done speaking about a presentation on linux and somebody said hey have you ever thought about speaking on behalf of microsoft or tech evangelism or advocacy and i'm like you do know that that session was on linux right (laughs) and it just it still blows my mind. Um, yeah. So I think to see how we're still involved in other projects and it's not just limited to one thing that Microsoft was known for it very prominently in a negative light. Now to just see, again, that about face has been pretty exciting, but that, the only reason I brought that up was again, I think that's if, from Microsoft's perspective for us being involved in, in OCI calls or any of the numerous projects, it's really more so from a community perspective. And I think that's, that's the heart of that.
2: Yeah. The, wi- the wider community likes the way this is being done and that's, that's fine. I mean, I can, I can work with it. And if <laughs> most people think that this is the way to do it, maybe, maybe I have a bad opinion and I'm willing, I'm willing to change my opinion. I'm willing to be convinced that I'm wrong.
1: And yep. that's where I think I am. Like, I want to see again, in order to be convinced, at least for me, is I want to see, I want to see it solve something that yeah. is revolutionary for me.
0: That makes sense. Yeah. I think we're here is, we, we, we're all on the same page and we're again, we're all on the same page with uh, how Microsoft managed to turn itself around from being the bad guy in the, in the community and industry to be one of the awesome uh, players that uh, drive um, a lot of good projects forward. And um, on this optimistic note, um, I would like to thank our guest Jessica, thank you very much for coming. Uh, as it looks like now, it might be not the last episode because we're all grounded anyway. This is how we get a little bit to speak at least, not to travel and be on stage, but at, at least see people kind of face-to-face and talk to each other. So uh, we will be more than happy to host you um, in, in uh, next episodes of DevOps Speak Easy. Thank you very much for my co-host, Cosgrove. Ka- thank you. And um, I'm Baruch Sodogurski, just to remind you, um this is going uh, to our podcast, um, the DevOps Speakeasy podcast that can be pretty much found on any podcasting program. It's also live, uh, so it will be saved on JFrog uh, YouTube. And we're looking to expand to more channels of both live and recorded content in the future episodes. So stay stay tuned and Thank you very much again.